If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 20, we'll be reading verses 45 through chapter 21, verse 4. We're going to go right through the chapter break there. So Luke 20, if you would all stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 20, beginning in verse 45, reading down through verse 4 of chapter 21. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Father, we pray now that you would give us wisdom as we study this text and uh, seek to know what it is that you would have for us to learn uh, from this uh, story of this widow giving her last two coins. I pray that you you would stir in each of us a desire to love you, to serve you, and uh, to give our lives fully uh, devoted to you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our text for this morning presents a bit of a difficulty for me because there are two ways that you could interpret the meaning of it. And uh, just being perfectly honest with you, I'm not positive which is correct. And so I'm going to basically preach two sermons this morning uh, from this text. I'm going to show you the two different ways that it's been understood, and I'll let you decide uh, which is the right take. Perhaps both have some validity and will be helpful to you. I want to begin by just reading through the story. I'll give you uh, the two possible understandings of what Jesus means in in a moment here. But verse 21 begins, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 21 begins with these words. It says, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And just to help you picture this scene, uh, let's add in what Mark says. Mark 12 verse 41 says, He sat down opposite the treasury and he watched people putting money into the offering box. Uh, sort of like on a Sunday morning when we pass the offering plates. He's watching them give their donations. And it says, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came, put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And so the contrast is clear. You have uh, many rich people who are coming, dumping in large amounts of money. And then you have this poor widow lady who comes along, puts in two little coins worth almost nothing. And so Jesus says in verse 3, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So the facts of the story are pretty straightforward. Uh, Jesus is sitting in the temple. He's watching people give their donations. And all these rich people are walking up, dumping in large sums of money. Then along comes this poor widow with only two coins to live on, and she puts them in the offering box. That's what happened. Uh, Pretty simple so far. Likewise, Jesus' statement is pretty straightforward as well. Uh, She says this woman's gift was greater than the rich because she gave everything she had. They may may have given larger amounts of money uh, because they had plenty left over, but unlike her, she she gave the larger sacrifice. And so Jesus' statement and his assessment of this situation is also pretty obvious and straightforward. The difficulty comes with the application, and here's where I'll give you the two sermons, starting with the most common interpretation of this text. Uh, Most Christians throughout the history of the church have understood this story to be about sacrificial giving. And if you've ever heard a sermon from the story, I can almost guarantee that this was the application. 
Uh, Our giving is measured by how much we sacrifice, not by the amount that we give. And this is good news for those of us who may not be incredibly wealthy. Uh, We couldn't possibly afford to give thousands of dollars a month to the church. Uh, Even if you don't have that kind of money, your sacrificial giving with what you do have is something that God sees and is pleased with. And this concept, of course, is taught in other places as well. For instance, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed to the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now Paul clearly is saying here that not everyone is expected to contribute the same amount. Notice that little phrase there, uh, we're supposed to put aside as we are prospered, meaning uh, the rich should give more, the poor should give what they can. It's not like uh, everybody's held up to a certain amount that you're supposed to give. If you have a lot, give a lot. If you have very little, give what you can. And you're not any less generous just because you have less means. In fact, in the case of this poor widow lady, she was being more generous in a sense than all of the rich people there. In the eyes of God, generosity isn't some filthy rich person who gives millions to charity. Uh, That doesn't impress God as much as the man or woman who works hard each week to make money and then gives generously with whatever means they have. That gets God's attention. Uh, more than the rich guy who may write the biggest check each week, but hardly even feels it because he has so much left over to live lavishly. Now, if we're honest, most of us are not as poor as this widow lady. Uh, we could, most of us could give two coins, and we wouldn't, that wouldn't be everything that we have to live on today. Uh, it wouldn't be like we can't eat tomorrow because we just gave away our last two coins. And so the idea of, well, I'll give when, I'll ha- when I have more money, a very common thought that Christians have, but it rarely works out that way. Uh, Certainly, there are some times in each one of our lives when money may be unusually tight, maybe we lost our job or something, and so we truly can't afford to give much of anything right now. But if that's been the case for years, uh, then it's time to reevaluate if our problem is really poor financial stewardship uh, or a lack of generosity. John Broadus, a very influential Southern Baptist preacher in the 1800s, one Sunday when he knew he was going to be preaching this text about the widow giving her last two coins, He decided to do something different, sort of a visual illustration for people. And so during the offering time before his sermon, he walked up and down the aisles of the church behind the usher, uh, checking to see how much each person was giving. And he would even, you know, look over somebody's shoulder, kind of crane his neck just to verify the amount that they were giving in the offering. And of course, people didn't know how to respond to this. They all, uh, some of them were getting very upset. They started whispering, uh, wondering what in the world he was doing. After the offering was done, he went back to the pulpit and he preached his sermon about the widow giving her last two coins. And toward the end of the sermon, he concluded by reminding the congregation of what he had done during the offering, how uncomfortable they felt, uh, how they wanted to do their giving privately. And Broadus said, what I did this week, Jesus does every week. He sees the sacrifice that you make and he sees how much you hold back for yourself. Now, I'm not sure about his methods, but I bet people remembered that sermon. So that's the interpretation. That's what most people have taken uh, Jesus' statement about the widow giving her last two coins to mean, that she was demonstrating a greater degree of generosity by her sacrifice, and we ought to follow her example. Okay, so that's the end of Sermon 1. Now let's look at the other way this text has been understood, and I'll admit this is a very minority opinion. The vast majority of people have uh, seen this as a model of generous giving. But I actually think the second view is probably correct. 
I'm very cautious about ever saying the majority of Christians throughout the history of the church are wrong about a particular passage. Uh, in fact, this may be the only time I would ever even suggest that. Uh, but the more that I thought about this story and what Jesus said, the more I really don't think that first view is correct, and here's why. First of all, everybody seems to agree that this is a lesson about giving. Uh, but what exactly is the lesson? Aside from a vague truth, which is true, of course, that, that generosity is uh, not measured so much by how much you give, but your sacrifice that you make, that's certainly true. But are we really to view those, this widow lady as an example to follow? Uh, should each one of us really give every last penny that we have in the offering plate this morning and go hungry tomorrow? Uh, what if it's not about giving? What if it's rather about taking? What if the story isn't there to point out the generosity of the widow, but rather the greed of the religious leaders? This is a great example of how Christians, it's very easy for us to impose our ideas on the biblical text we're reading. We read a passage of scripture without really hearing what it actually says, and we assume its meaning based upon our background or religious tradition we grew up in or something. If you're familiar with this story at all, Again, it's probably because you've heard it propped up as an example of how Christians ought to give sacrificially. But where in the text does Jesus praise the widow for giving her last two coins? Now, go ahead and check right now. You won't find it there. Where does Jesus draw any sort of principle about giving generously from the example of this widow? Where does he say we ought to go and do what she did? None of that is in the text. All of it is assumed. The only thing that Jesus did is point out that she gave more than the rich because she gave all that she had. Is the lesson to be learned that we ought to go out and max out our credit cards, give everything away, clear out our bank accounts, and give it all to the church? I don't think so. And so Sermon 2 begins now. This is where uh, we're going to begin by looking at verse 44 of the previous chapter. Uh, sorry, verse 45. And th this view basically sees the story of the widow through the lens of what Jesus said right before this took place. As I've said many times, uh, chapter divisions, the verse numbers, none of those were originally a part of the Bible. They were added uh, centuries later. Nothing wrong with them uh, that makes it easy for us to find our place. Uh, but it, it's often easy for us to think, oh, this is a totally separate event because there's a chapter division there, when that's not necessarily the case. And so originally the book of Luke, it was one continuous story. So what happens here in the verse first a uh, few verses of chapter 21 follows what Jesus had just said in the last few verses of chapter 20. So let's go there now. Verse 45 of chapter 20 says, In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The religion of Judaism in Jesus' time had become a facade. It was all about externals, uh, long robes, loud greetings, honorable seats, long-winded long prayers. It was all about impressing people with your spirituality. Judaism, in other words, had become a hollow religion. This is why Jesus says in John 4 that God was seeking true worshipers who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Throughout Israel's history, God had, at times, become sick of the fake show of worship that the Jews were putting on. The Jews had a tendency to reduce their worship of God down to the forms and symbols, the ceremonies, with none of the heart behind the actions. Now, listen to the words of God to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. He says, What to me is this multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough 
of burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of this of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So in those verses, God is saying to the nation of Israel, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your offerings. Uh, stop burning incense to me. Stop with your prayers. Stop observing Sabbath. Just stop all of it. Get your heart right. Those actions mean nothing to God without a heart of love and devotion behind them. And this sort of external religiosity with no sincerity of heart was something the Jews fell into many times. And never had Judaism become more hypocritical and external more hollow than in Jesus' day. It was just a show of spirituality with no life inside. The, the leaders were more focused on acquiring wealth than helping anyone, more focused on their positions of power and prestige before the people than they were their standing before God. And the harshest words that Jesus ever uttered in the New Testament were directed at the religious leaders of, of, uh, of, of Israel. Matthew 23, verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. No, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Again, this is Jesus speaking. For you tithe mint and dill and come in and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Hypocrisy, that one word, uh, summarized Jesus' assessment of first century Judaism. They observed the Sabbath carefully. They offered all the incense and all the sacrifices 
They obeyed the food laws meticulously, but on the inside, they were rotten. Like a cup that looks clean and pure on the outside, but on the inside, it's full of filth. Like a tomb that is washed and painted, looks beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, it's full of rotting flesh. The Jewish leaders were all about externals, and they lacked any of the love and purity of heart that God really wanted them to have. And so right at, right at the heart of this hypocrisy was their love of money. Luke 16, verse 14 says the Pharisees were lovers of money. And as Paul would later write, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Uh, their love of money led them to take advantage of the poor. Back to our text, verse 47, what we just read, it says they devoured widows' houses. I don't think it's too hard for us to understand what Jesus is saying there. Obviously, they didn't literally eat uh, widows' houses. That verse used to confuse me as a boy. Uh, but it's saying there, they took everything that the widows had. Uh, they took their entire uh, savings, their estate. They cheated even the poor out of their money. There were numerous ways the scribes did this. For example, you remember back in chapter 19 when Jesus first entered the city of Jerusalem. It says he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Uh, they wanted to kill Jesus because he had ruined a part of their prophets, uh, their corrupt system that was lining their pockets. They had the money exchangers and those who sold animals in the temple in order to make money off of the people who had come to make sacrifices. They charged ridiculous rates because they knew the Jews were coming from all over Israel. It wouldn't make sense for them to bring animals all that way. And so they would sell them animals at the temple and rip them off. It was just one of many ways that Judaism devoured widows' houses. There were other ways they took advantage of the poor. For example, uh, the scribes were not only religious leaders, they were also the lawyers. Uh, part of the theocratic system of Judaism means that there really wasn't much separation between the government and the religion. Uh, it was all kind of intertwined. And so if you had a dispute with someone, uh, if there was a lawsuit being made, it went through the scribes, through the Pharisees. Uh, st settling your estate, uh, selling property, all of these things were handled by these same religious leaders in Israel. And they took advantage of the poor at every turn. And now we're ready to look at the story of the widow. And so just so you can see the connection here, how this uh, text reads without the chapter breaks, let's pretend the numbers aren't there. Verse 47 says, that Jesus speaking about the religious leaders says that they devour widows' houses for a pretense they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And then immediately after condemning those scribes who devour widows' houses, verse 1 says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in her two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Jesus had just finished talking about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And he specifically mentioned how they take advantage of the poor, devouring widows' houses. And then he stops to point out right in front of them exactly what he's talking about. This widow lady had nothing. She was destitute. Just two pennies to her name. And the hollow, hypocritical religion that Judaism had become guilted her into handing over her last two coins. This type of system was in no way pleasing to God. Uh, God would want them to help this lady, to, pr to provide for her, not take her last two pennies. And I think this view of the text seems to fit so well 
uh, with what it is that Jesus actually says. Again, Jesus doesn't say, oh, look at this great lady giving her, her wonderful donation. You should do like she does. Uh, notice his words in Mark. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It doesn't seem like uh, Jesus is happy about this. It seems like he's grieved. The others had plenty to give. This lady was scrapping for pennies and had to put all of that in. Again, I don't think Jesus is praising the widow necessarily for giving everything she had. I think Jesus is condemning the religious system for taking everything from this poor lady. Their religion had given up any love or concern for the poor. Now, there's one more reason that I think this is the proper understanding of the text, and that's what comes immediately after. Okay, so right before this, Jesus is talking about how the religious leaders uh, took advantage of the poor, they devoured widows' houses. Then this story happens, and right after, verse 5, Jesus says, I'm sorry, right after Jesus had, had finished saying this, verse 5 says, uh, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The people there at the temple, they were impressed with the religious leaders. They were looked up to for their position, their lifestyle of separation. And the Jews were even more impressed with the temple, a huge structure adorned with jewels and gold. It was written about by secular historians of the day like Josephus. The temple, I'm sorry, the temple was a symbol for the Jews of their religion. And Jesus says, it's coming down. This elaborate building you see before you today will be destroyed. And can anybody wonder why? It's pretty obvious given the context. Judaism was dead. It had become a hypocritical religion, hollow, devoid of any true love for others or worship of God. It was all about externals, looking good, doing all the right things in the eyes of men. And it took advantage of the poor, like this widow giving her last two coins she had to live on. And so God was going to tear it all down. Uh, these religious leaders would face greater condemnation, and the temple that they loved so much would be demolished. Now, you might be thinking, wow, these religious leaders are really something. Taking advantage of the people financially like that, it's a good thing that sort of thing isn't happening anymore. And to you, I say, you must not have seen much Christian television. Uh, because if you just go today and turn on TVN, you will find all sorts of televangelists saying very similar things. Uh, like, God's going to pour out blessings on your life if you just send me a check for $1,000. And they take advantage of people who are poor and desperate. This sort of thing is very successful, by the way, in Africa especially. Uh, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Those preachers lead many people astray, and they take their last coins for themselves. And as Jesus says, these will receive the greater condemnation. Religion, unfortunately, has often been used as a scheme to make money from unsuspecting people. Uh, not meaning necessarily to pick on one religion, because this is true of, of many different denominations and groups, but it would be hard to not mention the vast amounts of wealth that the Roman Catholic Church acquired during the Middle Ages. The leaders of that false system taught the common people that if they gave money to the church, they could help their dead loved ones and relatives get out of purgatory earlier. Of course, this is complete nonsense, but to the peasants, it was all they knew. Uh, the Bible wasn't allowed in their language. It was only in Latin, and so the common people couldn't read it for themselves. They were dependent upon the bishops, the, the religious leaders over them, to tell them what it said. And what they said was, every time a coin in the coffer clinks, another soul from purgatory springs. It wasn't until the Reformation, when the Bible started to be translated in German and French and English, 
All of a sudden, common people saw that they had been deceived, and they stopped falling for the financial schemes that had built St. Peter's Basilica and all the cathedrals throughout Rome. A building, by the way, St. Peter's to this day, that nobody can, can even put a price on because of its incredible value. Rome built all of those ornate church buildings off of the last pennies of the poor in the land. And so just like we see the rich tele-evangelists today taking advantage of the poor, uh, just like we see false religions throughout history have done the same thing, this wicked practice goes all the way back to Judaism 2,000 years ago. Sinful men in positions of spiritual authority devouring the houses of widows. So that's basically the second view of the text. Not that Jesus is praising the widow for giving so much, but rather that she is a victim of the apostate Jewish religious system that was devoid of any mercy or love that was all about greed and hypocrisy. And maybe you're thinking, cool, I, I much prefer this take because I'm pretty poor. I don't have very much in my bank account right now. And so this means I don't have to give up my last few dollars. Well, hang on. Uh, are we really in her situation? Uh, we today tend to think of poor as having a low bank account, uh, but we have our cable TV, we go out to eat, we have all sorts of luxuries in 21st century America. That's not the situation this lady was in. Uh, she wasn't poor because she was wasteful with her money on other things so that her accounts happened to be low at the moment. Uh, she was actually poor, as in no food tomorrow poor. Uh, not like she only had two coins in her pocket at the moment, but she had a bunch of possessions back home she could sell. Uh, no, this woman was destitute. She had nothing. Also, even if you are in her spot, the next question for us is why, right? She was a widow. In that culture of first century the, in the Middle East, she really didn't have very many options to improve her life. Uh, she would have like, likely have to beg for food on the streets each day. Someone like her uh, would have loved living in 21st century America where she could get a minimum wage job. That's way better than begging. And so we think of poverty today very differently. Uh, than, than in biblical times. So to summarize, the first view, this is again the most common interpretation of this text, sees Jesus' words here as a commendation of this woman, uh, of the widow, for how sacrificially she gave. The second view sees this rather as a condemnation of the religious leaders who took her last coins. And again, if I had to choose, I would say the second view seems more likely, uh, given the context and what Jesus says right after about the coming judgment against Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to get into that more next week, but if you just glance down in those verses, you'll see Jesus prophesies about how the temple is going to be destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem is going to be invaded by ar ar uh, enemy armies. Uh, Judaism will be basically dealt a death blow. It will all be destroyed and replaced with something new. And that new thing that replaces it is the church. Uh, if you want to read all about that, check out the book of Acts. This is where that transition takes place. Uh, Christians stopped offering sacrifices. They stopped going to the temple and observing all those ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And now they started gathering as local churches with other believers in Christ. And they committed themselves to worship God, to love and serve each other, uh, to push each other, to do right, and hold each other accountable when one member strays into sin. In other words, the New Testament church was sort of the opposite of what Judaism was. It was meant to correct the, the, the hypocritical tendencies of Judaism. Uh, the church was to replace the rituals and the requirements of the Jewish faith with grace-motivated love and service. And so as we close this morning, I want us just to consider how should our worship as New Testament Christians in a local church be different than what we see in this corrupt Jewish system in the first century? Uh, Jesus wasn't just spouting off some things he disagreed with the Jews about. Uh, he said this for a particular reason. Notice in verse 45, uh, back in chapter 20, 
says, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, notice this is not directed at the religious leaders. Okay, Jesus isn't, isn't rebuking them necessarily in hopes that they will repent. Uh, no, this is said to the followers of Christ, his disciples, in order that we would avoid these very same errors. Uh, because all of the religious tendencies the Jews had, they're tendencies Christians have today. Uh, Christians today need to beware and look at this as a cautionary tale to say, I don't want our church, I don't want myself as a Christian to end up going that direction. Verse 46, he says, Beware of the scribes who, love, who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in synagogues, places of honor at feasts. And so Jesus is saying, be on guard about this. Beware. Uh, these are tendencies of religious people. Uh, we need to constantly watch out lest we fall into the same patterns of sin. And then verse 47, they devour widows' houses for a pretense. They make long prayers. Uh, they will receive the greater condemnation. God hates hypocritical religion. He hates when people make a show of their devotion and service to God. These will receive greater condemnation. And so we ought to beware of these sins, lest we fall into them ourselves. And so first of all, the, the first lesson that we can apply to our, own self, uh, to our own church and to our own lives is to fight against hypocrisy. Uh, we talked about this some on Wednesday night, but the world around us often claims the church is full of hypocrites. And unfortunately, that's often true. May it not be so at Lakeshore Baptist Church. May it not be so of you. We must live out what we claim to believe, living consistent Christian lives, not just when we're here as a church on Sunday, but as we go throughout the week. Next, we must maintain a genuine love and concern for others. Uh, the Pharisees didn't care about people. All right, They tithed on all their spices. They were very meticulous about little uh, aspects of the Old Testament law, uh, but they forgot about mercy and justice and love. Uh, remember, the first command Jesus said is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second command is to love others as we do ourselves. If we get those two right, then the, right, the rest, the actions that we ought to take, follow from that heart. But if we neglect those most important aspects of our faith and simply practice all of the externals, going to church, giving the offering, then we will face greater condemnation. Third, we must resist the temptation to love money. Love of money leads to all kinds of evil. Our church right now, obviously, we're not in too much danger of that. Uh, we, we're not exactly a huge church with great finances. But uh, as churches grow and become more financially prosperous, it's very easy uh, to focus all of that financial resources internally uh, on ourselves, building a nicer building and uh, getting all new stuff and just spending it all on us and our little group instead of thinking about others, looking outside of us into our community, how we can help others come to know Christ. Lastly, I think this text is trying to show us the dangers of guilt-motivated service to God. The Jewish leaders used guilt as a means of motivating people to do what they wanted them to do. Uh, whether it was giving, whether it was uh, doing all the right sacrifices, observing the Sabbath, there were all of these uh, legalistic, guilt-motivated rules that were imposed on the people. And so as Christians, we are to have a totally different motivation. We don't serve God because we have to in order to merit favor with him. We don't give money in order to have our sins forgiven. Uh, all of that was paid in full by Jesus when he died on the cross for us. And so we serve out of love. We've been given grace, and grace is a far better motivator for genuine service than guilt. 2 Corinthians 9.7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, uh, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all, all grace abound to you, 
so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And so we each give as we have determined in our hearts. We don't do so because of pressure or expectations of others to give a certain amount. Uh, rather, we give cheerfully, not out of guilt, but out of love for the one who has shown us such grace. God has given us all things, and out of our love for him, we give. And, and then as we give, God gives more grace and enables us to do more and give more. God is seeking true worship, uh, people who will love him and love others, not just people who will go to church, give in the offering, pray long prayers. Uh, all of those are fine things to do, but not as an end in themselves. They should be an outflow. <clears throat> they should be the outflow of a heart that loves and worships God in spirit and in truth. This is why, again, Jesus says the greatest commandments are to love God and to love others. If you have that heart, the right actions flow from it. If you make religion all about the actions, you can go through all the motions with zero sincerity. And you'll impress everybody around you, your coworkers, your family, us here at church. We'll think you're a great Christian, but you'll end up facing the greatest condemnation from God on Judgment Day. May we each renew our commitment to serve God in sincerity.